Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Malcolm Gladwell is a well-known author, and one of his books is called Outliers. And in the book Outliers, he tells the story of one of the most famous psychological experiments ever conducted. It was conducted by a man named Lewis Terman, who was a professor of psychology at Stanford University, and he began this study in the first part of the 20th century, right after World War I concluded. And Terman is the man who invented what we now know as the IQ test, a measure of intelligence that is the basis of much of higher education in America, things like the SAT test, for example. So Terman received a a massive research grant and selected 1,740 very young five, six, seven-year-old students who had all tested with IQs between 180 and 200. In other words, they were extremely bright and intelligent. These little ones became known as the termites after Lewis Terman's name. And Gladwell writes this, quote, For the rest of his life, Terman watched over his charges like a mother hen. They were tracked and tested, measured and analyzed. Their educational attainments were noted, tested, marriages followed, illnesses were tabulated, psychological help charted, and every promotion and job change dutifully recorded. Terman wrote his recruits letters of recommendation for jobs and graduate school applications. He doled out a constant stream of advice and counsel, all the time recording his findings in thick red volumes entitled Genetic Studies of Genius. Terman believed that his termites were destined to be the future elite of the United States. So, did it work? Gladwell continues. When the termites were in their adulthood... Terman looked at the records of 730 of them and divided them into three groups. 150, the top 20%, fell into what Terman called the A group. They were the true success stories, the stars, the physicians and engineers and academics. 90% of the A's graduated from college and they earned 198 graduate degrees among them. The middle 60% were, as you might imagine, the B group. They were the ones who Terman decided were doing satisfactorily. The bottom 20% he called the, oh, y'all are smart. Are y'all termites? The C group. These are the ones whom Terman judged to have done the least with their superior mental ability. They were the struggling hourly employees, the men lying on their couches at home without any job at all. So Gladwell asked the question, what was the difference between the A's and the C's. 
Terman ran through every conceivable explanation. He looked at their physical and mental health. He looked at what he called their masculinity-femininity scores. I have no idea what that is. And their hobbies and vocational interests. He compared their ages when they started talking, what their precise IQ scores were in elementary and high school. And in the end, only one thing differentiated the A's from the C's. Family background. The Terman results, Gladwell writes, are deeply distressing. He says, let's not forget how highly gifted the C group was. If you had met them at five or six years of age, you would have been overwhelmed by their curiosity and mental agility and sparkle. They were true outliers. The plain truth of the Terman study, however, is that in the end, almost none of the genius children from the lowest social and economic class ended up making a name for themselves. What did the C's lack, though? Not something expensive or impossible to find, not something encoded in DNA or hardwired into the circuits of their brains. They lacked something that could have been given to them if we'd only known they needed it, a community. A community around them that prepared them well for the world. That story exemplifies something that every single one of us desperately and deeply need. Community. A community around us that will prepare us to live well in the world. Community must be a part of any rule of life that seeks to disciple oneself to and abide in Jesus. I've been studying this idea of a rule of life for four weeks now, and we've said that a rule of life is a structure of life. It's a series of practices and rhythms that we frame our schedules, our days and our weeks and our months and our years around so that we can grow spiritually, so that we can face the world well. And we've looked at four practices so far that are to make up a Christian's rule of life. Sabbath, solitude, scripture, and prayer. Today we look at community. The McCowns really have already preached my sermon for me. Thank you, Jeremy and Sarah. Uh, and of course, other than solitude, all the other practices can be and should be done in community and not in isolation. And even solitude, by the way, doesn't work well if you're not living in community the rest of your life. So is your life regularly connected to other disciples of Jesus? Is your life regularly connected to other disciples of Jesus? If it's not, the scripture is very clear, you won't get far. We need each other. No man or woman is an island. We are not ourselves by ourselves. So why is community so important for our way, for our rule of life, for our own growth in Christ? I want to show you four reasons why community is an important part of a rule of life from this part text in Romans chapter 12. So let's go through these together this morning. The first reason why community is important is because community trains us in love. The governing principle behind all of Romans 12, which begins sort of the practical theological section of this great letter from the Apostle Paul, is love. People are to love one another. Look at what he says in verse 9. Let love be genuine. 
Again, verse 10, love one another, he writes, with brotherly affection. Now, that is an interesting verse because in that verse, verse 10, we see two Greek words. That's the language the New Testament was written in. Two Greek words for different kind, kinds of love. The, the first word that's translated brotherly love is the Greek word Philadelphia. If you've ever been to Philadelphia, you know how ironic the name of that city is. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Uh, the second Greek word is the verb, the word translated, the verb there, love one another with brotherly affection. That verb, love one another, is a similar word. It's the word philostorge, philostorge. Our friend C.S. Lewis can help us here. Lewis has written a book called The Four Loves. And uh, in that book, he distinguishes between types of love as an ancient stu student of the ancients that the ancients wrote about. There's eros, or romantic love. There's agape, what Lewis calls charity. There's phileo love, which is friendship. And then fourthly, there's storge, which Lewis calls affection. And he says that storge is the only type of love that is not dependent upon something within either the lover or the beloved. For example, agape love depends on the lover expressing selflessness and charity. Eros depends on the beloved having something within himself or herself that is lovely, that will cue the romantic impulses that all of us feel. But storge, Lewis tells us, is different. Because storge originally refers to the love of a mother for her infant child and vice versa. In other words, it is an automatic, natural, and deep bond. Lewis writes this, quote, Storge is not discriminating. Friends and lovers will say that they were made for each other. But the special glory of Storge is that it unites those who most emphatically or comically are not. Storge exists between people who, if they had not found themselves in the same household or community, would have had nothing to do with each other. Growing fond of old so-and-so simply because he or she happened to be there. Because you're thrown together in the same family or same platoon or same ship. There's a wonder about that. For when you begin to say, no, she's not my sort of person, but she's really very good in her own way, you've crossed a frontier, Lewis says. It means you're getting beyond your own idiosyncrasies that you're beginning to learn to appreciate goodness or intelligence in themselves, not merely goodness or intelligence that is flavored to suit your tastes and views and your own palate. Later, he says, dogs and cats should always be brought up together. It broadens them so. Do you see the point? Lewis is getting at, I think, very similar thing that the Apostle Paul is getting at under the inspiration of God's Spirit. Christian community is in some ways like a nuclear family. It's a place where we're thrown together with people who might not be like us. With people whom we in many cases did not choose, just like you don't get to choose your siblings. With people whom we might have no affinity with and very little in common with and who we are called by God to love. To love and to honor. I've often remarked over the years 
how when you look around our church, a part of you should be thinking, there's no way I would ever hang out with these people if we didn't both believe the gospel together. There's nothing I have in common with some of these people, and frankly, some of these people irritate me. But we believe the gospel together, and therefore, we're a part of the same spiritual family, and loving that person is going to train and form me in ways that I would not possibly be trained and formed in otherwise. Do you see this church community as a means, as an avenue of growth for you because this church community teaches you to love those who were not the most natural people for you to love. Other than family, ironic, I didn't think this would be the Mother's Day sermon, but other than family, there's no harder people to love, that's really my point, than people in your church. We grow in affection, in storge, for those whom God calls into the same spiritual family that we are in and thus become more like Jesus Christ. Listen, the church is not a club. The church is not a club. In a club, you get together over an issue or a hobby, a hiking club, a pickleball club. Those are sprouting up all over the place. If you're in a pickleball club, what do you talk about? Pickleball. And if someone in the pickleball club comes up to you and says, hey, why did you start dating so-and-so? Or why is your kid doing this? You're going to say, that's none of your business. The score is five to three. Get on the other side of the net, right? But in a church, in a family, in a community in which philostorge is present, that question and all questions are on the table. That's Christian community. That's why it's essential. It trains us in love. Secondly, Christian community is important for our rule of life because it nurtures generosity and hospitality. It nurtures generosity and hospitality. Look at verse 12. Paul writes, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Deep involvement in Christian community, deep involvement in a church provides us with opportunities to be sacrificially generous. If you're a Christian this morning in this room, if you're a part of this particular church or whatever particular church you're a part of, you should look for the needs of other Christians in your community that you can help with. Now, of course, that has primarily financial implications. It does. It's not exclusively financial, but it is primarily financial. And if you read about the early church and their rule of life, in the book of Acts, this was commonplace. Just one example from Acts chapter 4, where Luke, the author of Acts, writes this. Now, the full number of those who believed were, listen to this community language, of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them were his own, but they had everything in common. Now, we who value Western democracy and private property laws get a little uncomfortable with that, and you should be a little uncomfortable with that. Is this a bunch of communism? No, but it is different than our view, without question. And then in the very next chapter, incidentally, in Acts chapter 5, two people in the church, a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, they withhold some of their property from the needs of the church, and God strikes them both dead on the spot. 
for what he calls lying to the Holy Spirit and being selfish. Now, there's a lot to say about that, of course. But fundamentally, we see that generosity is a natural outflow of gospel life. It's a natural outflow of gospel community. It's a way we mimic the generosity of God himself. Because we believe in and rejoice in what God has done for us generously in Jesus Christ. We also see, though, that deep involvement in Christian community provides us with opportunities, as the McCowns just spoke about, for hospitality. Hospitality is actually another love word. There's Philadelphia, there's philostorge. Hospitality is the Greek word philizenia. You know the word xenophobia, fear of foreigners. Hospitality is philozenia, love, love of foreigners, love of strangers. Hospitality is to give loving welcome to those outside your normal circle of friends. It's opening your life and your home to people in your community. It's another way that we grow in Christ as a rule of life because it imitates and flows out of faith in God's own hospitality to us in Jesus. What is the gospel if it's not God has invited us spiritual orphans into his home? In Luke's gospel, chapter 14, Jesus tells a story. He says that there was once a wealthy man who hosted a huge feast. The wealthy man represents God the Father. And the party that this man throws is the kind of party that we would expect to be for the elite and for the insiders and for the movers and shakers. And the initial invited guests have excuse after excuse for why they won't attend. And so the list goes out... uh, And the invitation is extended to whom Jesus calls the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The point is that God is hospitable. As the host in this parable is hospitable. God takes the broken and the weakened and the distraught and the messy and the addicted and the compulsive and the helpless and the poor. People like us. And brings them to a place that they never deserved or expected to be. And there's no one that is beneath God in his invitation. God is hospitable to us. God is a great host. God is going to give a wedding feast. And he invites those who are strangers to to him and makes them his friends. Regularly practicing. Generosity and hospitality in community will form us into the people God is calling us to be in Christ in profound ways as we love one another. A third reason why community is an important part of your rule of life is that communities give sympathy. Community gives sympathy. Paul says, verse 12, rejoice in hope. Again, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Being in community, the scriptures are telling us here and many other places, helps us both give and receive sympathy. One of the most important reasons we're called to be in community is to share one another's joys and to share one another's burdens. 
because we cannot do life alone. Paul puts it very profoundly in his letter to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says this, As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Do you have Christian fellowship in your life to such a degree that there are people who know what is hard and weep with you and who know what is to be celebrated and rejoice with you? What that does is it builds up our faith and our trust and our maturity. It, it helps us to know that we're not alone. It helps us learn to be receivers of grace and givers of grace depending on the situation. It opens up our hearts to God via the love of community. This is especially true, practically for a moment, on a generational level in the local church. One very valuable way we give sympathy is when the older believers among us with a little more life experience, with a little more under our belts can pull and encourage and build up and invest in the younger believers among us. So you younger Christians, learn from our, and I consider myself an older Christian now, sadly, learn from our mistakes, listen to our counsel, follow our example. And you older Christians, share your comforts and your sorrows with those who are coming after you, that they might grow in maturity. And indeed, this aspect of our love for each other flows again directly from God himself. In a mysterious way, Paul tells us in Colossians, all of our suffering in life is filling up the afflictions of Jesus. Whatever that means, it means at least this. God is deeply involved and engaged in our suffering. And the people of God are to be deeply involved and engaged in one another's suffering, partly through the work of sympathy. Christian community gives sympathy. Lastly, why should community be a part of your rule? Christian community fosters humility. Verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I think Paul in some way is being sarcastic here because it can sound as if in this verse Paul is distinguishing, distinguishing between the lowly and the not lowly. And I think that's where his sarcasm comes in because there is no such thing as a non-lowly follower of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a non-humble Christian we are all the lowly. We are all the lowly who follow and worship a God who made himself lowly for us. So, practice community and love one another by acknowledging your own lowliness. That's what humility is. Humility is recognizing that we don't have all the answers. That there are things in our own lives that we're blind to. That many of us do many things better than I do those things. That we all have God-given limits to our capacities and understanding and abilities. That none of us are really in control. Understanding humility ultimately is understanding how peripheral we are 
how central God is. Loving community, living in community with regularity is important because it fosters the humility that the author of Hebrews tells us without which no one will see the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a 20th century pastor in the UK and he was a very highly educated man, trained as a medical physician actually, and was called to ministry, went and got his seminary training and then took a church, his first church as a relatively young man uh, in Wales where he was from on the ocean, a little fishing village really is what it was. And his church was filled with simple, humble people, like tinkers and cobblers and fishermen and fisherwomen. And when Lloyd-Jones got there and uh, began to get to know the people, he initially thought, it's going to be very challenging for me to minister to this group of people because of the world he was from, London, high society, highly educated. But as he got to know them, um, he found that these people with whom he otherwise had nothing in common and very little affinity with were strongly connected to him and he, he to them. And then he found a verse in the New Testament, Ephesians 1.15, where Paul says that one of the tests of Christian faith is that you feel love for all Christians. He realized in teaching on Ephesians 1 that humility increases our love for God and for one another, and only by being in community where everyone is a little bit different and shaped a little bit differently can we really form it. So practically, as we wrap up, what would it look like for you to add community to your rule of life? Three quick things, and we're done. First, join a community group. If you're not in a community group, Kevin, raise your hand. He will connect you in one. Talk to him. Second, practice community with a friend or friends. Very practically, a way each one of us can craft community into our rule is to take one hour a week and set it apart for conversation with a friend. Um, Justin Whitmell Early, in his great book, The Common Rule, says that friendship is vulnerability across time. Friendship is vulnerability across time. And the practice of conversation is the basis of friendship because it's in conversation that we become exposed to each other and learn to both give and receive gospel-driven sympathy. That's the way of Jesus. And so it would be very helpful for you to just find someone in your life that you're friends with and take one hour a week to have lunch with them or have coffee with them or talk on the phone or even text to connect. Let yourself be known and let yourself know someone else. Third, keep at it. When they annoy you, keep at it. When you annoy them, keep at it. When you don't feel like you have time, keep at it. It's only together that God forms you into the individual he's calling you to be. Let's pray.